0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John chapter 6. Our focus today will be on verses 41 through 59. I'll be reading verses 21 through 59. Excuse me, 22 through 59. John chapter 6 beginning with verse 22. On the next day the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples but that his disciples had gone away alone. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to The son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how does he now say I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, grant a reverent receiving of your word, a holy hush to hear. Your word now, send your spirit to silence any grumbling, to convict of any unrighteous asking and motives. Grant that any lost here today Father, draw them. Grant them the new birth. Teach them. May they hear and learn of you, for everyone who hears and learns from you comes. So, Father, draw. And for your saints, strengthen our faith. Impress upon us the wonder of your mighty salvation. The goodness of the gift we have in the bread of life. The participation, the partaking, the union and communion. May we know that afresh now. In the strong name of Jesus we pray. Amen. In John 6 we see a crowd go from eating bread to asking for bread to grumbling about bread. They eat a kind of miraculous bread to then ask for the wrong kind of bread and then grumble about the right kind of bread. In verses 1 through 15, Jesus feeds the crowd of 5,000 plus, upwards of 20,000. He feeds them with a poor boy's small lunch such that they are filled. And twelve baskets of leftover fragments are gathered. They eat bread. The same crowd seeks Jesus the next day. And finding him on the other side, six interactions follow. The first four you have in verses 22 through 40, and they ask a series of questions of Christ, culminating in the request of verse 34. Sir Give us this bread always. They ask for bread. And as Jesus continues to press upon them, his singular answer, putting this bread before them again and again, which they are not comprehending and they're not receiving. Their final two interactions turn to grumbling in verses 41 through 59, our focus this morning. They've pled for bread, and the more Jesus puts this bread in front of them, the more their dissatisfaction with that bread becomes obvious. They have come not seeking Jesus as bread, but seeking Jesus for bread. It was their intent after the feeding, and they're perceiving something of what's being communicated therein, to make Jesus king. They do not want Jesus' broken body. They want Jesus to break bodies. So as Jesus puts before them the bread that has come down from heaven, again and again they grumble. All of Jesus' interactions so far have been with the crowd. Verse 2. Of chapter six, a large crowd. Verse five, again a large crowd. Verse twenty-two, the crowd. Verse twenty-four, again the crowd. His interactions have been with the crowd, and it's only at this point that they are now in these next two interactions referred to as the Jews. Verse forty-one and verse fifty-two, both. So the Jews grumbled. The Jews then disputed. Now Jesus is clearly dealing with the same group. Verse 41 makes that clear. The Jews grumbled about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Same group, but why does the designation now change for these last two interactions? John does not tell us that the crowd grumbled. He tells us, the Jews grumbled. This is especially striking because it's Jesus' interactions in the south, around Judea, Judea. It's those interactions where the other party is referred to as the Jews. We're still dealing with Jews, but whenever Jesus is in the north, The most frequent designation is Galileans, but here, the Jews. And then remember, this is put in the larger context of Jesus' festival cycle, is what scholars call it. Particularly, we were told in verse 4, that the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And so with that on the horizon, the Passover on the horizon, Jesus is in the wilderness, a desolate place, Mark calls it. He feeds a crowd of 5,000 plus with miraculous bread. And we also learn from Mark and Luke that they were made to be organized in groups of 50 and 100. So here they are as if it were encamped in the wilderness around God, tented in their midst and they perceive something. Also, it's likely that they perceive the twelve baskets, twelve baskets of fragments that are gathered up afterwards. And they perceive something of all this, and they exclaim, "This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world," referring to Deuteronomy eighteen, eighteen through nineteen, the prophet like Moses. And so with Jesus now putting before them the bread from heaven again and again, we are told the Jews grumbled. Not the crowd. Changing the designation at this point to the Jews. Like their forefathers, they grumble in the wilderness. Exodus 16, and God provides bread. And like their forefathers, they then grumble because of the bread provided. Numbers 11. They grumble for bread, and then they grumble because of the bread given. We're told that they grumbled about Him. They grumbled about Him because He said. They grumbled about Him because He said, I am the bread of life. The grumbling in the wilderness was horrid in light of the redemption and grace that God had just expressed to them and delivering them. And the providence to grumble about manna was a serious sin. But how much greater is this sin? The manna was a type. Jesus is the archetype. The manna was a shadow. Jesus is the substance. The manna was a sign. Jesus is everything that was signified in there. The manna was a promise. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that was promised. He is the bread from heaven given to us in this wilderness of sin to undo the curse and grant life to those who have merited only death. They're not grumbling against bread given by the God of heaven. They're grumbling against the God of heaven given as bread. Ingratitude is a grave sin. Grumbling is a greater sin. Ingratitude at the physical bread that We enjoy every day so richly is a grave sin. But grumbling for the bread of heaven, provided that sinners may have life, is a far, far greater sin. They grumble asking, is not this Jesus? He said he's come down from heaven. We know who his parents are. Yes, indeed, they know his parents. Very often, truths are the worst of lies. Partial truths can be twisted into whole lies. Yes, they know his parents. Joseph is his father, but Joseph is his adoptive father. Yes, Mary is his mother, but hers was a virgin conception of the Christ child. They know his parents. This is the come down part. And it is wondrously and beautifully true, but it's gloriously true because it's not the whole truth. He has come down. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is God the Son incarnate. He has come down. Remaining what He was, He became what He was not. God tempting among us in flesh. Knowing a little bit about Jesus can be dangerous. It can result in grumbling instead of gratitude. It can mean the difference between feasting eternally with gratitude and eternal famine, grumbling against the God of heaven. Beware of a little knowledge of Jesus. How often is Jesus rejected for a little knowledge of Him? For a little Truth about him, how many atheists, how many pagans reject Jesus for a little truth? They come to know a little something about the Bible, they come to know a little something about Bible manuscripts and church history, they come to know a little bit about science, they come to know a little bit about the church and and, and its history and and the people. In the church, they come to have a little knowledge and then they reject Jesus for that little knowledge. They make big decisions with big consequences based upon a little knowledge of Jesus. A little knowledge of Jesus can damn your soul. Truth about Jesus, just in small measures, can be eternally deadly. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ, because He is the Son of God, is transcendent. He's inexhaustible. You cannot know Him comprehensively. You cannot master Him. But do not let this prevent you from earnestly seeking to know Him as thoroughly as you possibly can. Do not reject Him for a little Knowledge. Strive to know himself as he's revealed himself in his word. Reject him educated if you're going to reject him. Seek him. Seek to know him thoroughly. As thoroughly as you can. Do not reject him for a little knowledge. After commanding them, do not grumble among yourself. Jesus' response to this has two parts. In the first part, verses 43 through 46, he speaks concerning their coming to him. And this expands on the thoughts he introduced in verses 35 through 37. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All who the Father gives to the Son will come. No one can come unless the Father who sent him draws him. And many try to blunt the force of this by saying it refers to a kind of general wooing, That God does towards all mankind. God draws all. He he tries to woo them. And and cause them to fall in love with Christ. That dulls not only the force of this text. It dulls the glory of what's presented here. The word for draw means to powerfully attract. Attract. Not in the sense of of making attractive so that your Lord has the idea of someone powerfully attracting to, the idea of dragging, pulling, hauling. For instance, this is the same word that's used in Acts chapter 20, where we're told that they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. Now, because of this, some have tried to misconstrue the doctrines of grace. And what we're talking about here is effectual grace, the grace of God that does His desire and His will and saves the souls of those whom He desires. Some have tried to misconstrue it as though this has God dragging sinners, kicking and screaming into the kingdom. As though He coerces and pushes them into salvation against their will. Men are not drawn by God contrary to their will. They're drawn by God changing their will. God does not draw men kicking and screaming into the kingdom. He draws them so that they no longer kick and scream. His drawing means they stop grumbling. And they come with the open hands of gratitude to receive His offer of grace. You see, the one we're told that the Father draws is the person that Jesus raises up on the last day. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him. Same person. The person the Father draws is the person Jesus raises up. If this is talking about everyone, then everyone saved, but that's not what it's talking about the person the father draws is the same person that jesus raises up the person the father draws is one who is taught of god jesus to explain this quotes from isaiah it is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by god referring to isaiah 54:13 They will all be taught by God. Isaiah is anticipating a future redemptive kingdom. They will all be taught by God. And this is the same kind of language Jeremiah uses when he refers to the new covenant. And God says, I will write the law, my law on their heart. I will put it within them. And no longer will they say to their brother, one Jew saying to another, know the Lord. No longer will they say that because they will All know me is the promise there. They will all be taught by God. They will all know Him. To be taught by God is to hear and learn from the Father, verse 45. And everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to Jesus. Everyone To be drawn by the Father is to be taught by the Father. To be taught by the Father is to learn and hear from the Father. And if you learn, and if you hear, you come. You're irresistibly drawn. You are effectually drawn. You're brought to stop grumbling. This is a sovereign, powerful grace. This drawing is identical to the giving of verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. The Father elects, and the Father draws, and everyone drawn comes. And before moving on to the next part of Jesus's response, Jesus offers this clarification. They're being taught and hearing from the Father does not mean that they've seen the Father. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Seeing the Father is the exclusive right of the Spirit and the Son. No one else has seen the Father. No man has seen the Father save the man Jesus Christ. This was already communicated to us by John earlier, John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at His right hand has made Him known. No one has ever seen God the Father. The only God, God the Son, He has made Him known. So Jesus is the revealer of God, and God is the drawer of men towards the Jesus who is revealing the Father. Saints... Remember and revel in this. Jesus is not an acquired taste. He is a given taste. If you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. If you have tasted and seen that the bread of heaven is good. It is not because you have a more sophisticated palate that you have acquired. It's because you have a renewed palate that God has given. If you've tasted and seen He's good. If you've tasted this bread. Lift up your hearts and praise and worship right now. Oh who am I? That this bread was given for me and to me. The Father drew me. That I was given to the Son. And whereas in the first part of His reply. Jesus speaks of their coming to Him. The second part of His reply. He speaks of His coming down. He is the bread from heaven. Come down. Verses 41 through 57. And He begins saying. Everyone who believes. Has eternal life. Believes what? Follows that again with its simple Short, verse 48, I am the bread of life. Whoever believes has eternal life believes what? That Jesus is the bread of life. Manna was given by God to his people in the wilderness that they might live for a time. And everyone who received that bread died. Now Jesus is speaking of the bread that if one eats of it, he will not die but live forever, verse 50. And with the statement in verse 51, it's made clear that eating is believing. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. Look at verse 47. Whoever believes has eternal life. If anyone eats, he will live forever Whoever believes has eternal life. The way eating is done is with the mouth of the soul called faith. Jesus presses this analogy further saying that the bread that he gives, verse 51, is his flesh. The bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. So you have this tension between physical flesh of Christ being given, and the spiritual means of partaking of that flesh being faith. This analogy makes things very tangible, so tangible that many have taken it to be a reference to the supper, and then many take the supper to be actually the bread, the body of Christ. These words are not about the supper. These words are about what the supper is about. Which means that the supper can tell us then something what these words are about. Every word of the institution of the Lord's Supper is pregnant with meaning, it seems. Luke twenty two nineteen. 19. He took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it. And gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Our Lord took bread. He took flesh. And then that flesh having been broken, he gives it to them. He gives it for them. The supper is the analogy. Jesus' flesh is the reality. His body was broken for us. Given us. To us, and the way we partake of it is by faith. And, and the reason he says why his flesh is, he gives it. We're told is for the life of the world. Verse fifty-two. That is not contrary to the specificity that we saw earlier—that only those that the Father draws can come to Jesus. This is the same kind of language used in three seventeen. For God did not send a Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. God gave His Son to save the world. And on the return of Christ, whenever a new humanity inhabits a new heaven and a new earth, A new humanity made up of every tribe, every people, every tongue, every nation. No one will say to God, you didn't save the world. No one will say to God, you failed. You said that you sent your Son into the world not to condemn it, but in order to save it. You failed. No one will say that. Jesus says that He gives His flesh for the life of the world and the life of the world He will have for His flesh. This new humanity given to Christ by His Father, He will lose none. These verses are not telling us that Jesus made the world savable. It's telling us that Jesus saved the world. He gave His flesh for the life of the world and the life of the world He has for the giving of His flesh. And with this, the Jews, and again, it is the Jews, disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us His flesh to eat? They're still grumbling, but there's this kind of dispute among themselves and the question is, How? it's been made clear that how one eats is by coming and believing. There's probably still some confusion about that. But that's not the question they're asking now. They're not asking, how do we eat? They're asking, how does he give? How? And Jesus will subtly and distinctly yet, Answer that question. But also note that they ask, How will this, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? That shouts volumes. They refer to Jesus as a man when he's been speaking of himself as the bread that came down from heaven. Remember, John tells us that he records these signs so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in His name. These signs are done so that they might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And they ask, how can this man? Jesus replies, telling them first negatively, basically, no eat, no life, verse 53. And then positively, eat and you will have eternal life, verse 54. And with this, verses 53 through 54... It may seem that Jesus is bringing nothing novel, nothing new to the conversation. He's not advancing the argument in any way, not gaining any ground with this debate, that he's just doubling down, stating the same thing again. But on reflection, I think you see two things that happen here. One, just quickly, is that Jesus explicitly makes clear something of why man needs this bread. Verse 53, without it he has no life. If you don't eat, you have no life. Whereas Paul tells us, we are spiritually stillborn. We are dead in our trespasses and sins outside of Christ. But as you reflect more, this is, this is what's really striking about Jesus' words, his answer, in verses 53 and following, is in a subtle way, he answers How? It's only after they've asked how that Jesus puts this startling image alongside eating His flesh. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. those three elements, flesh, blood, and life, form a very distinct triad in the Jewish mind. Flesh, blood, and life. There are a number of texts we could go to, but the fullest has to be Leviticus 17. If anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Life is... Flesh, blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Anyone also of the people of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourns among them, who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten, shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is its blood, its blood is its life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. The irony is that that passage both tells you why the Jews could be repulsed by this kind of language, and it tells you the significance of what Jesus is trying to convey to them by this language. How is it that he gives his life for the world, for the life of the world, he gives his flesh for the life of the world? As a sacrifice offered up in their stead. By the blood being poured out. The way they would partake of Jesus' flesh and blood is the same way they would partake chiefly of that sacrificial lamb that would be offered up in their stead. It was offered up in their place and it was by faith and understanding the flesh and the blood and the life in their place. And partaking of that. Jesus' body thus given and his blood thus poured out are true food and true drink. Now, in order to understand what Jesus is getting at, we need to get over the silly idea that the spiritual is somehow less real. Now, the flesh and blood as given and poured out are real, but the means of partaking thereof are spiritual. But we must get over the idea that spiritual means less real. God is spirit. He is the most real Being and thing that exists. There's nothing more real than God. In one sense, it's been pointed out by R.C. Sproul, we are human becomings. God is true being. He is the I am. He exists. He is absolute being. He is the most real thing. And so physical food can sustain us for a time. But that which results in life eternal, however you partake of it, that is true food. And that is true drink. And that is Christ and Christ alone. And something of, of why we have eternal life and will be raised up on the last day if we partake of Christ is unpacked for us. Why, why this eating and drinking means life is unpacked for us in verses 56-57. through 57. Whoever feeds and drinks abides in Christ, and Christ abides in them. They're in union with Christ. Now, how is it that Christ abides in us? And the answer is the Holy Spirit. How is it that the Holy Spirit indwelling us means Christ abiding in us? And the doctrine here that we would refer to as the doctrine of mutual indwelling has a lot of other names. Another one being perichoresis. It's a Greek word. It means uh, penetration. So it has the idea of the interpenetration of one person of the Trinity into the other. Where one person of the Trinity is, the others are there fully present. Mutual indwelling. Kevin DeYoung sums it up writing, the mutual indwelling of perichoresis means two things. First, the three persons of the Trinity are all fully in one another. And second, each person of the Trinity is in full possession of the divine essence. Now this truth shines brighter in John than any other singular work in the Scriptures. And we'll see that unpacked a lot as we go forward. But specifically concerning the Holy Spirit, the chief place where we see this mutual indwelling unpacked is in Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. You see the same kind of paradigm. You are in the Spirit if the Spirit indwells you. Let me read it again. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, that time it doesn't say the Spirit of Christ. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Being indwelt by the Spirit means Christ abiding in us. What the Spirit does is put us into union and then communion with Christ. We abide in Him; He abides in us. And it's this very truth of perichoresis that John, that Jesus, excuse me, then uses to unfold something of why it is if we partake of Him, we have eternal life. Verse fifty-seven as the living father sent me and i live because of the father so whoever feeds on me he also will live because of me now the mutual indwelling of the persons of the trinity is an unfathomable mystery that is beyond us that we know experientially nothing about it's revealed to us but we don't have any kind of inkling of the depth and glory of that truth. It's beyond us. It's something that belongs to God and God alone. And yet by way of analogy Jesus says in the same way that I have life because of the Father you have life because of me. I abide in you and you abide in me. He Who is the life eternally? And who is the resurrection? We by faith partake of in such a way that by the Spirit we are put into union with Him. Who is the resurrection and the life? So, now Jesus... Does repeat himself in conclusion in verse 58, but it's with so much more meaning behind it as he repeats the central premise of this whole argument. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Can you see him motioning, gesturing, in some way, referring to himself? This is the bread, this flesh, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate. That's what you're asking for, and you're grumbling because you have not received it. This is the bread that has come down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. This crowd goes from eating bread, to asking for bread, to grumbling about bread. They've eaten a kind of miraculous bread to only ask for the wrong kind of bread, then grumble about the right kind of bread. And they need to turn around, not just go in reverse and repeat. They need to turn around and deal with each of these actions appropriately. They need to repent of their grumbling. And they need to ask genuinely and sincerely for the true bread from heaven. And asking they need to then by faith partake. And have eternal life. Sinner, this is the bread from heaven. Come down for the life of the world. And it's been set before you. It's been set before you as we've looked at this text again and again and again. It's been set before you again and again in the same way that the manna fell from heaven to Israel in the wilderness again and again and again. It's been set before you again and again in the way it's been set before these Jews again and again and again. And oh, that you would not, because it's familiar, because it's common, because you've seen it so many times, not just today, but many times throughout your life. Life, oh, that you would not grumble, but that you would ask, that you would come, that you would believe, that you would eat, that you would drink. The bread from heaven is set before you, you do not know everything about him, you cannot. But He's been set before you truly and you know enough just as the Israelites did at this point. You know enough. Do not grumble. Do not harden your heart like those in the wilderness. Do not harden your heart. Do not mumble, grumble, murmur against this bread. This is the bread from heaven that came down to give His flesh for the life of the world. If you would come He will give you this bread. If you would eat, you would have eternal life. If you would drink, you would abide in Him and He would abide in you. Do not grumble as those Jews did in the wilderness. Do not grumble as these Jews do with the bread of heaven spread before them. Repent of your grumbling. Come, eat, drink, believe, and have life eternal as you're put into union with the Son by the Spirit. Holy Father, we cry out. Every believer here, I know, I know if they're walking with you in any kind of obedience and faith, we're crying out now. Together, for our friends, for our loved ones, for our children, for those who have covenanted with us, we're crying out, Father, draw them. Draw those you have given to your Son. That's our hope for these souls. So that they come, they believe, they eat, they drink, they believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing they have eternal life. Father, give us a zeal, knowing your word will not return to us void. Give us a a steadfast confidence that your word is powerful. That your gospel is the power of God into salvation. and Give us a readiness and an earnestness to take it to the souls of those who have no life. If they don't know your son. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.